the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, largely ignored by evolution on other planets, rutabagas turn out to be the grand shamans of the plant world who could call in Cthulhu at any time if we failed to put sugar in their pies. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have part one of a two-part roundtable discussion this time on a great short story collection highlighting the theme of the femme fatale, found not only in mystery and suspense, but in science fiction and fantasy as well. And these stories are science fiction and fantasy stories. The book is called Noir Fatale. It's edited by Larry Correa and Casey Ezel. And features the work of a bunch of great writers, including David Weber and Laurel K. Hamilton, as well as a story by Larry Correa. We have with us for the interview Larry Correa, Casey Ezel, Laura K. Hamilton, Chris Smith, Alistair Kimball, Griffin Barber, Mike Massa, and Robert Butner. What a great panel. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The Bain Bay hardcovers and original trade paperbacks are now at booksellers everywhere. These include The Gordian Protocol by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. A Man of Two Worlds. Dr. Benjamin Schroeder's life was as close to perfect as he could ever dream it would be. That is, until he has a psychotic episode that results in him having memories of a nightmare world that cannot be. It's a world in which a second world war resulted in millions dead a world in which nuclear weapons have proliferated around the globe, a world in which the Chinese communists succeeded, a world in which the Middle East is a festering sore of bloodshed, fanaticism, and terror. But, of course, none of that can be real, or so Dr. Schroeder believes, until someone knocks on his door one afternoon with the impossible and horrifying story that there are alternate realities, time travel, and temporal knots. Now the fate of the universe rests on Schroeder's shoulders, Billions of lives across multiple dimensions hang in the balance. And finally in May, out in original trade paperback, is the latest entry in P.C. Hodgell's Kinserath High Fantasy series. That one's called by Demons Possessed. Something is preying on the gods of Titastagon. A crucial moment draws nigh, leading to the ultimate showdown between James North and Paramal Darkling, the supernatural entity that has pursued James' people, the Kinser, across multiple universes, destroying all in its wake. But now news arrives from the vast city of Titastagon. The new pantheon is falling, and the ancient city is in turmoil. It seems many in the vast lower town have lost their shadows, which is not so funny when you realize that a shadow is cast by a soul, which means someone is taking or destroying souls in the city. But whatever demon-wrought madness is afoot in Titastagon will have to face the ultimate avatar of God, that which destroys. That avatar is one James North. By Demons Possessed, by P.C. Hodgel, Noir Fatale, edited by Larry Correa and Casey Izzell, featuring stories by Laurel K. Hamilton, David Weber, and more, and The Gordian Protocol by David Weber and Jacob Hollow are now available at booksellers everywhere. 
This is part one of a two-part interview with editors and authors of short story collection Noir Fatale. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Hey, I want to welcome Larry Correa, Laurel K. Hamilton, Griffin Barber, Chris Smith, uh, Robert Butner, Mike Massa, and Casey Ezel to the Bain Podcast. Hi, folks. Really great to have you. Hey, hey. hey Hi, Tony. Nice to be here. Excellent. Larry Correa is the creator of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times best-selling Monster Hunter series with first entry Monster Hunter International, as well as urban fantasy hard-boiled adventure saga The Grim Noir Chronicles with first entry Hard Magic and epic fantasy series The Saga of the Forgotten Warrior with first entry Son of the Black Sword and House of Assassins that was just out. He is an avid gun user and advocate who shot on a competitive level for many years. Before becoming a full-time writer, he was a military contract accountant and a small business accountant and manager. Larry lives in Utah with his wife and family. Casey Ezel is an active United States Air Force helicopter pilot who also writes science fiction, fantasy, alt history, horror fiction, everything. Her first novel was a Dragon Award finalist in 2018, and her stories have been featured in Bain's Year's Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction compilation in 2017 and 2018. In 2018, her story, Family Over Blood, won the 2018 Year's Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction Reader's Choice Award. She writes for Bain and Chris Kennedy Publishing. A veteran police officer in a major metropolitan police department out west, Griffin Barber is also a lifelong speculative fiction fan and gamer. He's had shorts published in the Grantville Gazette and penned a well-received novella for Robert Space Industries' website called A Separate Law. His novel, 1636, Mission to the Moogles, with Eric Flint, is available from Bain Books. He and Casey Ezel co-authored a Norris F. novel called Second Chance Angel. Madame Sunderhaven and the story features in a novel he swears will be completed soon, tentatively titled A Petty Necromancy. A native of Texas, Christopher L. Smith moved home as soon as he could. While there, he also met a wonderful lady who found him funny, charming, and worth marrying. Chris began writing fiction in 2012. His short stories can be found in lots of anthologies. He's co-written two novels with Jason Cordova and John Ringo and Casey Azell. And that will be Gunpowder and Embers, Last Judgment's Fire Book One from Bain Books in Fall. And a solo urban fantasy novel is currently under construction. His cats allow his family and three dogs to reside with them outside of San Antonio, Texas. Laurel K. Hamilton is an American multi-genre writer. She is best known as the author of two series of stories, Anita Blake, Vampire Hunter, and Mary Gentry. Her New York Times best-selling Anita Blake, Vampire Hunter series centers on Anita Blake, a professional zombie raiser, vampire executioner, and supernatural consultant for the police. The series includes novels, short story collections, and comic books. Six million copies of Anita Blake novels are in print. Her New York Times best-selling Mary Gentry series centers on Mary Meredith Gentry, princess of the Unseely Court of Fairy, a private detective facing repeated assassination attempts. Laurel was born in rural Arkansas, but grew up in northern Indiana with her grandmother. Her education includes degrees in English and biology from Marion College, now that's called the Indiana Wesleyan, Hamilton is involved with a number of animal charities, particularly supporting dog rescue efforts and wildlife preservation. She currently lives with her family in St. Louis, Missouri. 
Alistair Kimball is a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation working with the Violent Crimes Against Children unit and is a team leader for the FBI's evidence response team responding to and processing crime scenes. Cool. He's worked a variety of matters throughout his career, including foreign counterintelligence and counterespionage. He served in the U.S. Navy, where he dangled from helicopters while performing search and rescue operations, as well as mission support for NASA projects, such as the Mars Pathfinder, special recoveries at Edwards Air Force Base. Iron Angels, an urban fantasy detective novel he co-wrote with Eric Flint, was chosen by Publishers Weekly as one of the top ten science fiction, fantasy, and horror picks for the fall of 2017. That's a fun book. Mike Massa has led an adventurous life, including stints as a Navy SEAL officer, an investment banker, and a technologist. He's lived outside the U.S. for several years, plus the usual military deployments. Mike writes novels and shorts in military SF, SF, fantasy, horror, and nonfiction. Currently, he's working on two novels, a second collaboration with New York Times bestseller John Ringo, as well as the first novel in the Genius War universe. Mike is married with three sons who check daily to see if today is the day they can pull down the old lion, but not yet. National best-selling author Robert Butner's novel Orphan is the 2004 Quill Award nominee for Best Science Fiction Fantasy Horror Novel has been called one of the great works of modern military science fiction. Bain Books will release his 10th novel, My Enemy's Enemy, in June. That's a good one. His short fiction appears regularly in print and online venues, and he has served as the author-judge for the National Space Society Jim May Memorial Short Story Writing Contest. A former intelligence officer, National Science Foundation fellow in paleontology, and attorney, he lives in Georgia with his family, and more bicycles than a grown-up needs. Um, so what we want to talk about today is is a new book out at booksellers everywhere, um, it is called Noir Fatale, and it's a collection of stories put together by, um, edited by Larry Correa and Casey Ezel. And um, it, it, I mean, it's not a big surprise coming from Larry that the that that he would want to edit a uh, a noir themed collection. Um, how did what's the uh, origin story of of how this came about, Larry? Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you wanted to do it? Um, sure. Yeah. The original idea actually was, uh, with Casey, my co-editor and she, uh, she had this, uh, noir story that she wrote that was sci-fi and she didn't really have anywhere to sell it to. And so she ran into me at Dragon Con and she knew that I loved noir because of the Grim Noir Chronicles that I did, the, the trilogy. And, um, she said, Hey Larry, why don't we, uh, you know, why don't we do this anthology together? We both know a bunch of writers uh, who likes this kind of stuff. Let's see if we can't uh, sell this to Bayon. And uh, I thought that was a great idea. So we uh, we approached Tony Weisskopf about it, about doing a collection of noir-themed sci-fi and fantasy stories. And uh, it just kind of came from there. Uh, and we've just been joined by Alistair Kimball. Hi, Alistair. Hello. Hey, Alistair. Hey, Alistair. So go on, Larry. Uh, um, so we start, We pitched this to Tony and uh, Tony Weisskopf. Oh yeah, Tony Weisskopf. And the way Bayon anthologies work is you kind of come up with a list of authors that you would like to invite, uh, and then the uh, uh, somebody's having some technical difficulties. <laughs> I don't know who's breathing hard, <laughs> um, but no. So uh, the uh, we made up the list of authors we wanted to invite, and there was uh, these guys we have here on the podcast today, and a bunch of other really talented folks. Uh, and we called in a lot of favors. <laughs> we got a really good crew. 
And uh, I believe the, the, the title actually was uh, Casey's idea. And uh, just because we started having all these femme, femme fatale pitches, and uh, it just went really well together. And I think we came up with a really great crew and some really fantastic stories. And I'm, I'm really pleased with how this turned out. Yeah, I mean, there's, um, there's a David Weber in here. There's yours. You have one. Uh, Laura Hamilton has one. Um, and, and all of these great writers plus, plus others. Do they all um, involve a femme fatale? Or is that, um, did, did that, one way or another, is that getting, got into every story? A little bit. Um, but everybody took it in kind of different directions. Um, so it was kind of fun. Um, because we had some that played it very, very, uh, you know, straight, very uh, traditional. Others took it in a different direction. Some, some of the stories were from the perspective of the femme fatale. Others, the femme fatale was uh, just kind of like a part of the story. Uh, in mine, I had someone who's a terrible femme fatale. She's very bad at it. Uh, <laughs> had, a, had a lot of really different ones, so a lot of different takes on it. Um, like like uh, Robert Butner gave us pretty much a love story with uh, with a. Uh, Femme Fatale on the Moon, and uh, Laurel gave us one involving uh, chocolate and sweets. <laughs> it's actually really neat. Cupcakes. Yeah, it was great. Uh, and then, like, Chris uh, Chris and Michael did one that was straight up uh, Femme Fatale uh, on a space station. And so just across the board, great stories, a lot of fun. My inspiration is the fact that I'm, that I'm dieting right now. And uh, my husband and I are dieting, so I have never, I have never written so lovingly and romantically about chocolate and cake in my entire life. <laughs> there are some beautiful passages in there detailing that. In fact, um, as, as I recall the story, the main character can't tell whether it's magic or not that is uh, that's pulling her toward these these in, in, these sweets. Because because we're we're everybody's kind of crazy and, and weird about sweets and food that you don't talk to anybody who has a straightforward I am five years old and it's a sweet cupcake or whatever and I just want that and that's okay no as adults we have to make it all weird so this is a thing where they are accusing uh, this wonderful baker of using magic to make her baked goods better. And is it magic or is it just good? Well, I mean, since you jumped in, can we let's let's talk about um, the story, which is called "Sweet Seduction" by Laura K. Hamilton. Um, this is an Anita Blake story. Um, where where are we in the in the Anita timeline, by the way? Here, uh, you are in between after Serpentine, which was the last one, and before the events that I'm. I, I'm in the midst of editing for the next book now. So it's uh, just just after our about the same timeline, just after that the wedding or just before the wedding that was featured in Serpentine with Edward. Sorry, and that makes no sense if people haven't read me. So, um, But it's, it's a concurrent timeline. So Anita is, for those who don't know the series at all, which is very few people, um, Anita is a uh, is a is a is, is she's a necromancer. She starts out and she's sort of a PI, and now she's a U.S. marshal on the side. Um, well, U.S. marshal with the preternatural branch, because yeah. um, very important distinction. Um, but she it's a it's a world as we woke up tomorrow. Everything that goes bump in the night is real. 
but everybody knows about it. And the police and the politics and everything, you just have to deal with the fact that vampires have been given legal rights of citizens and everybody knows werewolves, uh, lycanthropy is just a disease um, that turns you into something that can eat, you know, just eat your neighbors uh, once a month. So it is a little different from just, you know, a regular contagious disease, but um, it's modern world with all of it, all the monster movie stuff. If you want to go ahead and set the story up a little bit, so she's just she's very tired as we begin, right? She has been away with the U.S. Marshal Service, or with SWAT. She's been delivering a warrant, uh, warrants of execution uh, in this world. That's why the Supernatural Branch exists. Uh, supernatural beings, citizens are too dangerous to go into regular jail system. So if it, if you kill somebody, then somebody will hunt you down and kill you there. There's no trial. It's a civil rights nightmare. But she has just been on a hunt to uh, with a warrant, and she has had no sleep. But this client has offered her boss at her quote unquote day job at Animators Inc., where the living raises the head for a killing. Uh, to to come in as a client and she hasn't any sleep but she's made enough money retainer that it's worth their while for her to go so she takes the client and she's trying to be polite and the lady doesn't want her to raise the dead doesn't want to raise zombies doesn't have a vampire problem or a werewolf problem the lady wants her to basically break up her son with the new fiance because the, the new fiance is a owns a bakery and she is not uh, she is not the ideal so basically she she doesn't like the new in-law potential and uh, the mother wants it the grandmother and the uh, and the old fiance want it taken care of want it want it over and uh, Anita is going this isn't my problem I don't do this <laughs> and uh, why are you even here and she ends up going to the going to try to figure out if it is magic. Is it is he being uh, used? Is a love spell been used? Has witchcraft actually happened here? If it is, that goes under the heading of illegal. It's considered a date rape drug, and if you are dangerous enough, even if you're human, if you have enough witchcraft, you can end up with a warrant of execution for yourself, and that will be it. So there are pretty high stakes if. If if this um this this husband stealer, uh, fiance stealer is is actually um, guilty of something, um, and and Anita is just the person that could take her out, right? It is, but she's also doing a bakery, so she's she's potentially working magic on all her customers, which would be very illegal. So what happens with the cupcakes? What's the? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Do you want me to give away the answer? No, no, no. I just, just set up. All right. So Anita goes, I just want, I want you to get into some of the voluptuous depiction of the cupcakes that that's, that's where we should probably end it. I mean, those are the real femme fatale in this story, aren't they? They're. <laughs> it, it is, it is the, like I said, uh, my husband and I are dieting and I've never written so, so lovingly about food in my entire life. Uh, I didn't realize that uh, cupcakes are apparently the thing I miss most, and so that's why it's a cupcake bakery. <laughs> so here I am writing. You know, we have we have this tough PI, very film noir. And what are we doing? We're standing in line at a bakery because it's close to something else we were doing for work, and we're going to check it out. 
and we spend we spend time listening to people talk about how the cupcakes make them feel like it's Christmas morning and you're five years old and you get up and it's magic. And and the first time you have, I don't know how many of you can remember, the first time you eat a food as a child, the first time you saw the color red, the first time you touched a, a puppy, the first time you remember seeing you know, a starry night with no light to contaminate it. If you can remember any of your firsts as a child, that's how this this food makes you feel. This is how sweet and how perfect it is. And it puts you back to that innocent point where it's just pure joy to eat it and you don't worry about anything else. She's I suddenly feel like my story is inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> well, this is uh, this is kind of classic Anita Blake in that um, you take these 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 horror situations and concepts and then bring in something mundane that Anita often has to deal with at the same time, um, and that's that's what makes the series so great. Well, thank you. Uh, what I said is that I take I take the fantastic and make it ordinary, whereas most people take the ordinary and make it fantastic. I bring fantastic and make it part of every day. Well, I think you certainly did that with sweet seduction. So, um, well, let's, yeah, let's, let's talk about um, a couple other stories. Let's talk about Chris Smith and Michael Ferguson's story, Ain't No Sunshine, which opens this, the uh, collection. Um, Chris, this is uh, this like Larry said. This is like straight up science fiction noir. We're in a space station. It's a grungy place, um, at least where um, your main character Slade needs to go. Right. Right. Uh, we tried to draw one of the one of the themes that we were trying to use is the old versus the new, and there's a couple of lines in there that I'm I'm kind of proud of, where we have the uh, you know the nice veneer peeling away and showing the corruption underneath. It's just kind of a a nice little symbolism there. Um, not nearly as well said <laughs> as, as the Anita Blake story, but you know, my my writing style is a little bit more straightforward. <laughs> um, but yeah, we uh, don't don't don't. I, I haven't gotten to read your story, which I am very much looking forward to. And and no, don't do that to yourself. You're everyone has their own oh, style. Yeah, Chris, we have to sell this thing. Damn it. No, I, I swear to God, I'm not being self-deprecating. I just, I have, okay. I've always really liked the uh, uh, the Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett kind of tense, terse verbiage. Um, very, very straightforward, but you know, seen kind of with a uh, from the protagonist slant that he notices it, but it's not poetic in any way. So what we're hearing is, is him describing the things in that kind of, uh, that tough guy tough style that you'd see from, you know, the old movies. Yeah. And well, who is, who is this guy Slade? Tell us about him. Cause he's a, he's a, he's a veteran. Um, but he's decided he's not going to go the tech route, right? Right. He, um, part of the idea, and just to kind of give you a little background here, when Casey and I were kicking around this, these ideas for these noir stories, uh, a couple years before she even mentioned it to Larry, um, I, I had this idea of, okay, well, what if we have this high-tech society where, you know, they've got the computer implants or everybody's connected to tech, but the guy that he has to not use it. He doesn't like it, and the actual crime 
is set up to where he can't use it even if he wanted to. It's and in this case, it's what's actually killing the people is the tech. So he's he's got an advantage in that, but a disadvantage because he has to do the old old school gumshoe work. Um, and when when Larry and I and, and Casey were on a panel at LibertyCon uh, right around the time this all got kicked off, <laughs> I mentioned it, and Larry. Larry really gave me the boost. He's like, I would read the hell out of that story. He's like, well, I guess I'm writing it now. So, <laughs> um, but Slade is, uh, yeah, he's a veteran. Um, I said, I'm trying to recall here, but uh, search and rescue. He was uh, part. I think he was a marine, and he was kind of in search and rescue. We wanted to bring it in as a character, uh, an aspect of his character, but not, not the only aspect of his character. Um, we kind of right around that time uh i'm sitting here trying to you know figure out where i wanted to go with the story and michael ferguson i've known for years um and i looked at him and i was telling him about it and he goes oh that's really good man have you ever have you ever read walter mosley and uh, uh easy raw not yet <laughs> and went home got the book and read it and decided that we needed to kind of make slade this uh easy rollins kind of character but in the future so we make a couple references to easy rollins and the old uh the old Humphrey Bogart P.I. kind of look in the story, and he gets a little hell about it from his friend. But uh, we really thought that was a, a good aspect of the character to bring forward, was that old hard, hard-boiled gumshoe. Yeah, and, and you you make it work because the twist of the story is, is that the tech uh, is going crazy on the space station, or on the series of space stations, and he is he's he's disconnected his AI from the war and everything else, and he he tries to stay off the grid as much as he can, right? So it's kind of a, an old-fashioned detective in a very new-fashioned place. Right, and that's, uh, one of the, again, one of the reasons why we wanted to bring that, that old school versus new school, the, uh, the oldest station in the, in the fleet, if you will, that is getting the, the coat of paint but not taking care of the rust underneath it. And that, yeah, yeah. we thought that drew a nice parallel between Slade himself and, the, uh, and what he's up against. Yeah. So we, we loaded a few things in there, too, with names, but uh, we had to throw out a couple names because we didn't think that we could get away with some of them. <laughs> well, it's really, it's really evocative of the old, of the old stuff. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Well, that, that's good. And the femme fatale in this one is, um, is, is we, don't, yeah, we can't say who it is because um, it, it may be the murderer. But um, there is uh, there there are several um, women who are uh, on Slade's mind throughout this who um, who have to do with his who are connected with his um, his former life right before he he went off. Yeah, and yeah, he's come really back to bring in the uh, yep, and again playing with the the old versus the new and the past versus the the future. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just pictured him as Robert Mitchum, and that was good. Oh, he's uh, he's black, isn't he? I think in the story, yeah. And very large. Uh, he's about yes. six five, <laughs> and you can hear him coming from a mile away. Um, especially if he's laughing. And if I could, real quick, just interject. Uh, sure. Like I said, I've known Michael for years and years, and found out recently that he had submitted and been published by Ellery Queen Magazine about thirty years ago. And so when I'm I'm telling him about what's going on with you know time current events like oh yeah I'm writing this detective story and it, he goes oh yeah I wrote for Ellery Queen <laughs> wait a minute what so I immediately texted Casey and said I need a co-author and I know exactly who it's going to be so I brought uh I brought Michael in and he had really really good input on the whole story I, I couldn't have written it as well as it is without it well cool that's come full circle. 
Um, well, let's go far, far back in time or, or to a fantasy world um, where, where we have a story by Griffin Barber. Uh, Griff, what, tell us about the goddess in red. This is a first-person narrative from a very, um, a very strange and ancient point of view, a nefarious point of view even, wouldn't you say? Yeah, she's the, she is the uh, archetype of the uh, uh, anti-hero or anti-heroine in this case. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fantasy world that I've been working in and trying to uh, complete stories in for years and years and years. And when uh, Chris is talking about uh, talking to Casey about this stuff, I uh, I was in on the, some of those conversations as well, just uh, talking to her because um, Alistair is, uh, has always been uh, a really big noir uh fan and and wanting to write stuff for that and i immediately thought of him not myself but then when uh casey suggested that i write a story for it as well i was like oh yeah i guess i could do something and um the character is the necromancer she goes by a bunch of different names uh throughout uh the canon or the the uh, story that i'm developing but the necromancers are a little bit different than the prototypical ones. There's, there's almost an element of vampirism to the, what they're doing as well. Um, and in the novel that uh, I uh, have started but yet to finish, uh, she has she has a throwaway line that, where she says, you know, she's sneaking up on somebody and she says, in all my long years of, of uh, learning things from different people, I learned from a lover how to be a thief and how to sneak and that kind of thing. And that throwaway line in that novel was what I used for the premise for the A Goddess in Red. So uh, she is participating in a heist that she's brought into by a uh, the master thief of the age, like the, the greatest thief of the age. So she uh, is, because of her ability, she is uh, uniquely suited to carrying out this heist. Because when you don't have to breathe, you can sit in a barrel for a long period of time and not worry about uh, suffocating. Yeah, she has unique talents <laughs> to pull this off. But one of the limitations she faces is that um, is is she's used to sucking souls and stuff like that, but she can't do that on this this job, right? Yeah, because the master thief says that it's uh, it's it's a no no that you can't do that because. If we did it like that, then we'd be no different from a robber or uh, somebody, some common thug or even the nobility who just takes what they want without actually uh, earning it. And uh, the crooked path, which is, has to do with the religious pantheon that I've developed for this, uh, the crooked path doesn't allow you to hurt somebody in the commission of a crime because then you're just being a thug. Yeah. How do you get into this? Um, uh, because you write this from... Um the point of view of a, an ancient and evil woman and you're like a cop. <laughs> so how do you get into this character to, uh, to, I have a few contacts with evil people every once in a while. So oh, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, not as much as Alistair, but you know, on occasion. Uh, and, know. uh, one of the things that always kind of, that always bugged me about uh, most fantasy is your, your perspective. Um, when you're immortal, let's say you're an elf in Tolkien's world, you're gonna your your politics are gonna be very very different from uh, a short-lived species. 
you're going to think in terms of, you know, not this year's plan, but, uh, you know, not five-year plans, but you're going to think in terms of decades. Um, and so I'd always been kind of entertained by that. And then what it really came about with this character was Facebook friends, you know, those old high school friends that you have, and they post up uh, some trite meme or something like that that is just kind of like, oh, man, that's just bad. You know, like something like, um, I, don't, I don't give time to anybody who thinks ill of me. Clearly, they don't know me. And I, I, you know, I kind of have a twisted mindset, and it, that became, for the necromancer, I don't uh, have much concern for those that don't fear me. Clearly, they don't know me yet. Just kind of being making that little twist on things where, you know, what would the perspective of somebody like this be? And how do you make that person, uh, that character, uh, likable in some cases and uh, relatable in other cases and then yet still remain a monster? Mm-hmm. Um, was kind of the challenge I set for myself, which is part of the reason why the novels are still being slow to be completed. <laughs> it's because it's pretty challenging stuff to do. Well, she's she's delightfully wicked in the story, and it's it's a fun read. Um, well, speaking of Alistair, um, maybe we could talk about yours, which is which is a really a, a, an impressionistically written story with uh, with with some images that just sort of hit us from the very beginning. This one's called A String of Pearls, um, and our main character is a woman who is under some some various straits that are, are various. Rest- problems that she's having to solve all at once. Can you tell us a little bit about? Yeah, so um, I was trying to create a character in uh, Elizabeth uh, Sheridan, and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a nod, obviously, to uh, a couple famous film noir uh, actresses, Elizabeth Scott and Anne Sheridan. I kind of did a mashup there. Um, but anyway, um, I tried to create a character who was, uh, at first, you're kind of feeling sympathy for her uh, but then toward that as the story goes on you realize she's under a lot of duress throughout most of the story and uh you find out through like technology and through the men that she's been dealing with uh that she's a been abused and b she might have a plan of her own uh that you're not entirely sure she's an, a reliable narrator uh throughout the story as well um, and what her end goal is so i was trying to leave it a little more ambiguous uh, as the story went on as to what her goals and objectives were um, as, you know, like a femme fatale type character. Now, tell us about, there's these nano things that people are, uh, is this, yeah, this is the one, right? Um, possibly inhaling. Um, there's uh, this, this mind, this is sort of, sort of um, wicked control bracelet she's got on. What, what, what is the, where, What's she in here going into the beginning of the story, and what's what's going on? Uh, in the beginning of the story, she kind of uh, is um, wandering back to her days in Los Angeles, how she was kind of a like on the run, hoping she was going to be picked up. Maybe that would have been the best thing for her if you know, the police had come in and got her. Um, and it's also evident throughout the story that she's been involved in something in the past where technology went awry, and that's where these nanosects come in and uh it's not even clear throughout the story how much of the country is affected by these nano swarms basically and that there may be safe havens um and there are strict controls in certain cities uh new orleans seems like and this is where the story ends up is new orleans is uh that you're not sure it can be controlled in a city like that um where there's muck on the street 
you know, it's a really dirty atmosphere. And in the midst of all this, you know, uh, Elizabeth's uh, boyfriend or husband, Mace, is, you know, she's dressing up in nice clothes and trying to walk through this stuff in heels. And it's almost kind of ridiculous, kind of like if you ever watched Deadwood, which is set in the uh, you know 1800s, and you have these people who are very Victorian ideals walking around in these dresses in mud and uh, muck and uh, encrusted streets. So I try to get that feel uh, in the story that uh, technology went awry, and you know you're trying to control it, and it's not really controllable at this stage, except with, in very limited means, uh, like with the bracelet, for instance, where he's controlling her. Um, but like anything else, you figure out, like with these nanosecs, that she really can't be controlled. Yeah, she's a tough cookie. Um, <laughs> some bad things have happened to her, but um, she is she's not given up, right? Exactly. Uh, so, you know, the, this guy from her past shows up, but you're not really sure if this wasn't set up to begin with. So I, I've left a lot of that ambiguous um, to maybe let the reader try to you know, piece this together and provide just yeah. enough answers. Uh, so maybe toward the end of the story, they're like, oh, well, maybe maybe she's kind of an architect behind some of this stuff. Yeah, and she's wearing a string of pearls that that may have um, technology that that could that's either change the world or just make it far, far worse than it already is. Exactly, and and that's like the whole. Uh, I guess the MacGuffin of the story is this, you know, a, a string of pearls where you're not really sure was it going to fall into the right hands. Um, was there some kind of a change at some point where those aren't the pearls? Uh, you're just not really entirely sure and yeah. i think that's like i'm a big film noir fan as griffin uh had alluded to and uh you know it's usually dirty and it's usually it doesn't end well um so i, I kind of approach my my story as more of a noir piece yeah. well it really has that feel and, and and like um i think every anthology needs the the story where you're not exactly sure what's going on because the author holds back a, a little bit of information i think this is um you know you, you need to sink into it and, and get that uh that poetry of the description that you're after there it's a it's a really good piece it was fun to write i had to say when casey asked me to do a near future um story and i was like wow okay i've have something in mind and it just it just flowed out and it was nice being able to write in that manner that was part one of a two-part interview with editors and authors of short story collection noir fatale part two will be available next time on the podcast Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. 
the age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. The prisoner he'd struck in the face was crawling into the grass. A swift kick to the ribs flipped him over, then Jagdish pushed the spike against his throat. What's happening here? Talk or die. Blood spilled from the prisoner's broken nose and painted his teeth. The fallen went to killing the guards, then all of us too. What? Jagdish pushed the spike in enough to break the skin. Don't lie to me. It's true, I swear. Some other protectors came, demanding to see him. The guards opened the gate, but they started cutting your boys to bits. Then went cell to cell, hacking everyone down. And we're next if you don't let me go. Please. Please. Such fear couldn't be faked. Jagdish stepped back. This was madness. There was no way Ashok would do such a thing. The prisoner scrambled to his feet, clutching at his bloody throat, and ran into the darkness. The torch that had been thrown at him was still lying in the road, burning. Other prisoners were scattered around him, moaning or dead. He couldn't even remember hitting that many of them. And then he looked down and realized he was covered in blood. My men. Jagdish started toward the gate in a daze. More prisoners were running across the inner yard, but they were efficiently cut down by a figure who materialized behind them before they could reach the open gate. At first, Jagdish thought it was one of his guards, but then the figure stepped out of the shadows, intricate armor gleaming with silver inlays and the golden symbol of the protector order on his chest. What's going on here? Jagdish demanded. The protector started toward him. His hood was up, and in the shadows beneath all Jagdish could see was the stubbled edge of a strong jaw and eyes that seemed somehow too reflective. It wasn't Ashok, but it was one of his former brothers, and thus nearly as intimidating. The protector didn't answer. I am Rizalda Jagdish, commander of this garrison. You will answer me. What law have we broken? The man kept walking, sword held down at his side. He tilted his head, acting as if he'd not heard, or he was confused. And instinct screamed at Jagdish that the protector was trying to close the distance so he could strike. As he got closer to the torch, Jagdish could see that the protector's gauntlets and boots were soaked and dripping with blood. To the sea with you then. Jagdish took up the halberd in both hands and shifted into a fighting stance. He aimed the spike at the protector's chest. Come and try me. 
White teeth reflected the moons. The protector was smiling. Now they understood each other. They circled around the torch, sizing each other up. Jagdish had a few feet of reach advantage, but if the protector could slip inside the arc of the longer weapon, then he would be at the mercy of the swordsman. The protector's vitals were shielded by some of the best crafted armor in the world. Jagdish was wearing a cotton uniform with his own vomit on it. He had been taken by surprise after a long night of drinking and interrupted a protector who was already warmed up by a killing spree. I should have gone home to Pakpa. The protector lifted his sword, almost as if he were showing it off. There was a gentle curve to the blade, a slashing style that the horsemen of Zaga preferred. Nothing like the broad, straight swords of the northern houses. Then he reached out with the sword, tapping at the end of Jagdish's halberd, almost as if this was a game. Jagdish tried to knock the steel away, but his move was clumsy, and the protector turned the halberd and stepped back, seeming to enjoy himself. You've arrived too late. Like his sword, his accent was from the high deserts, but protectors hailed from every house. Pathetic trunk. Only on special occasions, Jagdish muttered. What the hell had he been thinking? Here he was, being intimidated by a protector, when he'd come here fully prepared to be struck down by one in a desperate attempt to win honor. Jagdish's grip tightened on the wood. To hell with him. What have you done to my men? But the protector didn't answer. Instead, he lunged forward, catching the blade of the halberd with his sword and trying to shove it aside. Rather than step back as the protector must have expected, Jagdish kicked the torch. It flew forward and bounced off armor, sparks flying, and as the protector twisted away, Jagdish followed, stabbing with the halberd. The spike glanced off the lamellar shoulder plate, but Jagdish kept on him, stabbing, lifting, and cutting, forcing the protector back. The halberd came back, flecked with silver paint, but no blood. Jagdish was enraged. This is my prison. These are my men. The protector countered, lunging forward, striking at the halberd shaft, trying to force it down. But the warrior was having none of it. When his attacker made it past the spike, Jagdish turned and slammed both arms forward, crashing the length of wood into the armored chest. The protector went flailing back, tripped over one of the dying prisoners to crash against the stone wall. There was a burning sensation on his shoulder. Jagdish glanced down to see that his uniform was hanging open. He'd been cut. Didn't even see that one coming. He roared, lifted the polearm, and went after the protector. Jagdish hacked through vines and ivy and sent a shower of dust from the wall beneath, but the protector had already scrambled aside. The protector counterattacked, blade flashing through the air. Jagdish tried to block, but he'd put himself too close to the wall, and the haft scraped against stone, slowing it just a bit. He felt the cut as a terrible fire burned down his ribs. Grimacing, he moved away from the wall, striking with both ends of the long weapon, trying to make distance. But the protector followed, 
constantly swinging, his blade a blur of motion. Splinters flew from the halberd shaft, but better splinters of wood than bone, and Jagdish sacrificed his weapon to save his life. The halberd went flying across the road. The protector's eye instinctively followed the bouncing polearm, just for a heartbeat, but that was enough for Jagdish to launch a kick into his opponent's leg. Nothing broke, but it pushed him back long enough for Jagdish to draw his own sword. They were back where they started. Only now, Jagdish was bleeding, and his foe was not. Slick, hot blood was running down his belly, but not fast enough to drop him yet. The protector's hood had fallen back, revealing a hard, square face. Duh, better than expected. Yeah, worse, Jagdish said, honestly. Ashok was far faster than this one. With all his clumsy mistakes, if he'd been fighting the Blackheart, he would have been dead five times over by now. It seemed that not all protectors were created equal. They met in the road, sword blades flying. Jagdish's issue weapon was a traditional Vadal broadsword. It was heavier than his opponent's weapon, thus a bit slower, but it was also longer, and the extra mass was sufficient to knock the lighter blade aside. The protector kept slashing at him, but even with the fog in his head, Jagdish's muscles remembered what to do. Months of training with the finest killer in lock had prepared him. He caught the edge with his flat, and then again, always moving, interrupting his opponent's lightning-quick swings with fast strikes of his own. The protector seemed to grow frustrated. Unlike Ashok, this one actually seemed capable of getting tired. Jagdish pressed the attack, cutting and thrusting. His arm burned, but he kept it high. No delay, never settling into a pattern, and never, ever letting up, even for an instant. The protector overextended. Jagdish used his sword to push the blade further astray, and then slugged the protector in the face hard with his left fist. A jolt ran down Jagdish's arm, but that square jaw gave, and the protector took a few halting steps back, stunned and hurting. He might have finished with him then, if it wasn't for the interruption. Enough games. We've got work to do. Jagdish spun around to see who else was speaking. There was another protector coming out of the prison, wiping his bloody sword on a torn scrap of Vidal Grey. This one was an average-sized man, neither old nor young, but obviously in command. The protector he'd been fighting put one hand to his face and shoved his broken jaw back into place with a sick crack. Jagdish flinched. No matter how tough a man was, that should have put him down. The protector moved his jaw side to side and then opened and closed his mouth a few times. Satisfied it was in the socket, he spoke as if no injury had occurred at all. Let me finish this, Sakasa. It isn't often we find a real challenge. You call this a challenge, Loam? He smells like a brewery. He's more skilled than he looks. Make it quick. Sikasso tossed the bloody rag that had been a guard's tunic on the ground and sheathed his sword. 
I've got a message to deliver. Use your magic and finish this mope. That'd be cheating, Lom said, eyeing Jagdish suspiciously. A good fight makes life worth living. It's getting paid that makes life worth living. Sikasso began walking across the grass. I don't care what you do, but if you don't catch up in time, you're not getting your cut. I'm off. You're not going anywhere, Jagdish bellowed at him. He'd have his revenge on these protector dogs, and he was angry enough to fight their entire order at once to see it happen. But then... Sikasso seemed to... melt. Silver dripped into black. Jagdish blinked, uncomprehending, as the protector spread his widening arms and leapt into the sky. It was almost as if a hole formed in the world. There was a color, but not one that his mind could comprehend or accord. Where Sikasso had been was an absence of sight. And then something came out the other side. He thought he saw feathers, but then he had to look away because the searing darkness burned his eyes. There was a beating of wings and a slap of air, and then Sikasso was gone. Witchcraft! Jagdish roared as the abomination soared into the night. You're no protectors of the law. His opponent laughed. Your law is for the weak, and you're not worth losing my share. Jagdish turned back to see that Loam had lifted something small from a chain on his belt, and he was clutching it in his hand. More of the eye-stinging magic was emanating from that fist. Loam began whispering something that made Jagdish's ears ring. Jagdish charged. Things had changed. This time he didn't even stand a chance. Loam parried every attack effortlessly. A grin appeared on the murderer's face, and it began to widen as he chased Jagdish back. It took everything he had just to survive. Loam seemed gleeful. Flats met. The curved sword slid down steel, and Jagdish nearly lost his fingers. The false protector moved like the wind. He's toying with me. Loam hit him incredibly hard in the side. It would have been a killing blow, but he'd used the spine of his blade just out of spite. Loam did it again. It was like being beaten with a steel rod. Now this was like fighting Ashok. He batted Jagdish's sword away, then kicked him in the torso hard enough to lift him off his feet and fling him down the road. Jagdish hit the ground hard, rolling, stomach heaving, simultaneously gasping for breath and retching his guts up. He could feel the shape of the footprint embedded on his chest. Jagdish tried to stand, but loam was on him, and a fist clipped the side of his face, driving him back into the road. Stars begun behind Jagdish's eyes. That was for breaking my jaw. Loam kicked him in the side to roll him over. He stepped on Jagdish's sword, pinning it. That really hurt. The force protector stood over him. The chain hooked to his belt was dangling, 
and at the end of it was something small and impossibly dark, swinging back and forth. When he tried to focus on it, the object stung his eyes. No wonder I lost, fighting a damned wizard. Jagdish tried to curse him, but all that came out was a wheeze. I've enjoyed this. Loam lifted his sword to deliver a decapitating blow. But I've got places to be, he said, just before his head opened like a red flower, and Jagdish was hit by a shower of blood and teeth. Armor clanking, Loam flopped to his knees. There was an angry roar from behind, a flash of movement, a terrible thud from another impact, and then Loam collapsed in a heap. A huge man appeared, standing over the wizard, holding the giant iron beam the guards used to bar the gate. It normally took two guards to lift the thing, but now it was being held by a single person, and there was blood and dark hair stuck to that massive bar. He lifted the beam in both hands, thick muscles straining, and brought it down on the wizard's head again. Red and white chunks flew in every direction. Seemingly satisfied that Loam's skull had been thoroughly smashed, the big man spit on the nearly headless corpse, then tossed the iron beam into the road. Clang! He wiped his bloody hands on his clothing, and Jagdish realized his clothing was nothing more than a wool blanket with a hole cut out of it for his large head to poke through. A prisoner had just saved his life. Looked like you could use a hand, Risolda. What's this then? I knew I smelled magic. The big man knelt down, took up the chain and tore it from Loam's belt. Demon bone, that'd be worth a few notes. Then he picked up the Zarja blade. It looked like a toy in his hands. For a moment, Jagdish thought the prisoner might use it to finish him off. But instead, he used the sword to cut a strip from the dead man's cloak, which he roughly shoved against the gash on Jagdish's chest. Lay still. You're hurt and there's no rush. Far as I can tell, your friends are all dead. You have my word. I'd no hand in that. It was this fool and the other one. He stood up. Jagdish recognized him as one of the worker cast prisoners, but right then couldn't remember his crime or even his name. No offense to your fine hospitality, but I intend to escape now. Just hold on to that rag, tight as you can, and make sure you keep pressure on that wound. Jagdish was still recovering from getting the wind knocked out of him. He couldn't have stopped the prisoner even if he'd felt like it, but he needed to understand what had happened here. He managed to croak. Usher? The Blackheart. He weren't involved. How'd you know? Jagdish gasped. The big man grinned. Because some of us lived. And then he ran away. The warrior Jagdish lay bleeding in the road before Cold Stream Prison surrounded by bodies as the torch slowly flickered and went out. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. 
Thanks to Bain intern Victoria Lambert for editing help and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a box full of javelina mating call echoes from the mesas of Big Bend National Park and a handful of shadows left over from making out of the past. Plus, thanks and plaudits to Larry Correa, Casey Ezel, R.L.K. Hamilton, Chris Smith, Alistair Kimball, Griffin Barber, Mike Massa, and Robert Butner, editors and authors of Noir Fatale. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 